Quick note, when this episode was recorded, the name of the podcast was Off the Pulpit. We have since changed it to Why the Gospel, to be better in line with the focus of what this podcast is all about. Enjoy. Welcome to Off the Pulpit, a podcast dedicated to interviews and conversations with pastors and church leaders. Today, our guest is John Anderson, pastor of Grace Life at Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida. Through that ministry, John pours his heart into young and growing families. John is also a professor of New Testament Greek at the Expositor's Seminary, and you can learn more about the ministries he is involved in by going to the show notes of this episode and clicking on the links to Grace Emanuel Bible Church and the Expositor's Seminary. I caught up with John during a student ministry summer camp where he was the guest speaker. We sat down to discuss discipleship, the hardest part of ministry for him, and an interpretation question in 2 Corinthians 4.4. I hope you find this conversation as much of a blessing as I did. Enjoy. Okay, so let's talk about discipleship. Um, So tell me about your, not specifics, but in your discipling relationships in the past, what does it look like? Um, whether it's, this is how long we met, this is kind of how we went about things. Uh, if you want to pull Roy into it, feel free. Um, and, and, and then after that, um, I want you to answer why it's so important, or if you feel like it's better to do that first, why it's so important for believers to be in discipling relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, discipleship has always been a part of my ministry since becoming a pastor at Grace Emanuel Bible Church because that's what we're called to do. I mean, that's the great commission to go and make disciples. And so uh, I had the blessing of seeing it done when I was in seminary. I was in, involved in the college ministry at Grace Community Church with Rick Holland. And so there I was in seminary learning from a pastor who was mentoring guys, just speaking into people's lives. Um, uh, he was always like aggressive uh, in just making sure that, hey, how are you thinking about these things? How are you responding to truth? And so I had been exposed to a Christianity that was pretty much, you know, uh, make sure that you're orthodox and that you have good sermons and that you've got a website and then you've got some midweek activities, and that's pretty much how it worked. And you could really isolate yourself. You could incubate yourself. Um, It was a culture where it would almost be offensive. It'd almost be like you just cracked some eggshells by stepping into my life that close who are you get out of my kitchen you know that kind of just you know disdain of this is like who are you again and um so that that personal offense was part of the culture and you know to overcome that was was necessary to actually fulfill so many of the commands in scripture i mean paul tells the ephesian elders shepherd the flock of god among you i'm sorry peter tells the uh um, uh, the elders shepherd the flock of God among you in First Peter 5. I mean, it's, it's obligatory that you actually shepherd sheep, that you're in their life. Um, that's far different to be able to admonish, to be able to exhort, to be able to confront, uh, to be able to, uh, you know, approve of someone's walk with Christ. I mean, that requires walking alongside them. That means you've got to know how they're living life. Uh, and so I think that was, you know, uh, something I learned, I already had a, a, a knew that there was an ob- obligation for that when I left seminary. And then when I went to Grace Emanuel, it was even, it was even at a whole other level. There was discipleship happening. And I, and I even remember as a pastor, I showed up there. I was, I sh- probably shouldn't have been a pastor. I was 27 years old. And I remember the pastoral staff just loving on me and coming alongside me and just 
asking hard questions and penetrating. And I, and I just remember thinking, like, who? Like, we don't even, do I know you? Like, why are you asking me this question? It just seemed so intrusive. And it was, it was just a matter of months before I realized, man, this is just the most loving environment. Uh, it's so necessary to have people who love you and care about how you're thinking about things. And it would only be pride that I would resist a loving question that might make me uncomfortable. And so that's when I started realizing, man, I, gotta, I, I, I have got to be a part of this. This is critical. I'm watching it play out around me. I'm watching a, a level of life-on-life uh, relationships that, that were something like I hadn't, really hadn't even seen at that level before. So I remember praying about that, just praying that I, I could be involved in discipleship. And uh, that first year... Um, we, we were getting ready to start the seminary. The seminary was, we were already having discussions about the seminary. Uh, those were happening uh, up until, uh, I, think, I think we launched in 2006 was the first class. And I remember 2005, we had a couple of guys who were looking at pursuing ministry, and so they approached me, and, um, and we just started working through a lot of uh, doctrine. A lot of, it, was very, it was very heavy, it was very bookish, which was helpful and, and necessary, but at the same time, you know, that would develop into conversations about hard issues as we were working through theology and working through truth together. And, um, and then what was critical about that was those guys were involved in ministry. I was throwing them into responsibility, mm-hmm. you know. So the first guy who approached me, he just said, he said, hey, uh, I, I just want to serve. How can I serve? And, and uh, you know, and, and, and he, I don't know what he was thinking uh, my answer was going to be, but I just said, hey, you know what, the uh, junior high ministry, they need somebody to, you know, sit in with that leadership and just help, help make sure that, uh, you know, kids are well behaved. Can you just make sure you do that? And he went on Sunday, and he didn't miss a single Sunday, and he was devoted, and he was diligent. Um, and that was, he'd probably been out of a halfway house all of one year, um, coming out of, you know, a criminal record and addiction to drugs, and, and uh, all of a sudden, he just loves the truth, and he just wants to serve in any capacity, and I was looking for um, somebody who was teachable, who, wasn't, who didn't have the answers, and he just was willing to do whatever I asked him to do. And so we started pouring into him. He went into seminary, uh, was one of our first graduating classes, um, became the high school pastor, and now he's a missionary in Geneva, Italy, mm. and a uh, church planner there. And so speaking at your church tomorrow morning. Uh, and so just, that was just one of those stories of you know, God's grace where I got to see... Um, God growing this young man uh, in his convictions, and, and you get to watch him make mistakes as he's genuinely trying to serve, but he's in a protected environment because he has guys over him. I had guys over me. I was in a protected environment. Um, and it was just such a, a great place to be able to use your gifts, but then also know that, you know what? Sheep are protected by older, wiser men that are going to prevent my mistakes from having a long fallout uh, of impact, negative impact on the, on the church. And so that's what we've always tried to do is just make sure that you're, you're finding guys who are humble, who are teachable, uh, who manifest brokenness over their sin, concern about um, the danger that, that they pose. I, I think that's probably the most critical element to a guy who wants to, to be trained for, if you're talking about discipleship for, at the pastoral level, hmm. that there's an, a liability about their self. There's a liability that they would know I'm, I'm the greatest threat to my own ministry. Uh, and, you know, that's a guy who's going to be able to be really useful. Um, uh, so, you know, when, when Roy came along, it was interesting because Roy was, 
Well, Roy was actually, when I, when I first knew Roy, I knew him as an unbeliever. And um, it was sweet because I had confronted him on some things. And there was some, there was some distance for a while. What was that like maybe nine months or a year almost? We didn't, I didn't know, I, didn't, I don't know what Roy thought of me for about a year. But uh, then all of a sudden he, he calls me up and asks me to get back into his life. And I'm thinking like, what gives? I'm like, Roy, well, uh, this is where, where, this is where, do you remember our last conversation? Like, do you remember where we left off? And he's like, yep. And you gave me the answer I needed, and that's why I need to come back to you. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't expect that. And there was just this overwhelming self-indictment. He just fell on his sword and said, no, you are absolutely right, and, and I, want, I need those kind of answers because I want to be able to glorify Christ in my life. And so then he got plugged into the church, started serving. He was serving faithfully in children's ministry. Nobody, nobody knew except you know, a few, what was it, six-year-olds? or <laughs> A few six-year-olds. Nobody else knew what Roy was doing. And he was just serving up there faithfully. And I, and I saw him, I think it was about his second or third year of seminary. Yeah, and I, 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 said, I said, can I get some teaching experience? Yeah. And he said, well, there's a spot upstairs in the first grade through sixth grade. Can you do that? I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you went after it. You dove in. You were diligent. You were faithful. And it was so encouraging. And so since he, he had no complaints, just, okay, I'll serve. And that wasn't what he expected either, but he was just diligent because that was a real need. And after he demonstrated some real faithfulness and effectiveness up there, which is a challenging place, uh, I asked him to come be a part of the college ministry so I could hear him teach more and I could have him fill in for me. And, um, and so then it was fascinating. I mean, we just, you were married. Um, I think you already had, maybe you had Ruthie. Yeah. yeah, you had Ruthie at the end of there at the college ministry. And we started a Bible study down south where there was a lot of folks who weren't plugged into the ministry, a lot of new people to the church. They hadn't been taught so suddenly you get outside of, um, you know, families that are, are more stable and they've been around the truth for a long time. We were involved in issues, you know, there was all sorts of, you know, there was lawsuits, litigation, divorce, uh, doctrinal, you know, confusion and compromise. And so we're just dealing with crazy, you know, di- difficult situations. And so Roy and I kind of tackling those together. And it was just a lot of fun because I was able to um, be an encouragement to him and he was just able to meet needs. And so, you know, together it was a real real encouragement watching him develop and getting categories that are, you know, okay, how do I apply this in, in not a simplified, simplistic fashion? How do I apply this in a nuanced way, um, you know, in, in situations that I haven't lived? And so that was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, don't, I just can't imagine a discipleship where you're actually not striving after obedience together. You know, I think that's, that's what is so, it seems so challenging. If you're going to say, I'm going to fulfill the Great Commission, I'm going to go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Well, how can I teach somebody to obey all that, I've, all that Christ has commanded if I'm not obeying all that Christ has commanded? And how can I teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded if I'm not helping them obey all that Christ has commanded? Mm. You know, it requires both of us to be after that and, um, and an equipping of them to be able to do that. So um, that's what we've tried to do. Those are a couple, couple encouraging stories. So I imagine that you probably get a lot of people, a lot of guys that come up and say, hey, I want you to meet with me, I want you to disciple me, you know, and you've got <clears throat> only so much time, you've got your family, you've got your ministry, you've got all of that. So how do you, how do you look at it and say, okay, um, do, you, do you have a team of men under you, that you and leaders that, you, that help you bring along new believers as well? You kind of developed a team of these are my guys and they're going to help me disciple other men um, that I don't have time to disciple everybody and kind of build a culture of that mm-hmm. under you? 
Well, it's yeah, uh, in, in a sense, yeah. But I mean, I guess I would, I, I guess I would probably hesitate on if you, if you think about it as people under me. There's an element sure. where, you know, that would almost sound like a as soon as I said bishopric. that, I bet he's gonna, it, it, he's it, gonna it. get that. I knew it. I knew it. I'm glad you did. Yeah, yeah, like a diocese. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm trying to trying to be the best bishop I can be. You know. <clears throat> so, but no, I appreciate the question. I mean, and there is a sense where, yeah, I, I want to be a part of equipping people to be more effective in their gifting. Um, but yeah, I am literally serving alongside a team of men who have and share the same burden. I mean, I might have a more of a burden by way of uh, in the in the Grace Life Fellowship uh, some, than some of the other guys who would be discipling and equipping and functioning as an elder as well. Kind of like my senior pastor has a level of burden that I don't share at that right. corporate level. Um, but other than that, it's just a team. Mm. It's, other than that, it's we're all on the same team. We're all going to be accountable to the same commands. We're all accountable to the same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that's the only way we could make sure that we meet these needs. It's, it's like we literally can't, we can't let needs go unmet, and I can't meet all the needs, and the other elder can't meet all the needs, and the other elder can't meet all the needs, and this disciple and this Bible study leader, he can't meet all the needs. And so there's this multifaceted gifting in the church that yeah. is critical for that. So there, there is, some, in some ways, there's a prioritization, like I want to make sure I'm pouring into the guys who are um, demonstrating an ability and, and trying to effectively disciple other men so if, I think, if you think about it biblically, um, Titus 2 talks about older women speaking into younger women's lives. It talks about what older men need to be, what younger men need to be. And there's an element where if I, I know that if I get a hold of the men in my fellowship group, in, in my church, um, I know that they're going to be able to minister to their wives. And if the older husbands are, are where they need to be, their wives are going to be speaking to younger wives as well. And so there's going to be an element where that's, that is a prioritization. And then even beyond that, I, I would probably prioritize the guys who are discipling other men, um, making sure that, you know, if they have answers, if they're, if they're, not, that they're not feeling like, man, I'm, I'm responsible for this guy's spiritual health and welfare, but I don't, I don't know how to have answers. I don't know how to help him. I'm, at, I'm, I'm stuck. You know, that's just a miserable place to be, so I want to make sure that I can be a resource to those guys. Mm. Um, so that's kind of how I think about that. If that's Yeah, that's helpful. How would, you, um, how would you know, or how do you know, when it's time to, quote-unquote, end a discipling relationship, whether that's for yeah. a negative reason of um, you are not following, you are not listening, <clears throat> you're not having a desire, um, and then more on the other side of, okay, we, you are in a place where you need to be discipling others, and I'm going to kind of push you off and into other things, or does that discipling relationship never really end? It just maybe changes in the way that your relationship is mm. going forward. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember the, the list of your, your questions right. I think there was three in there. I mean, the ones, the relationships where, like I have a relationship with a guy who I have, he has literally been in my ministry since junior high. And now he is married with three kids. And um, so I was, you know, I discipled him when he was a young student, and he, he was probably converted at a young age. Um, he, I was involved in his premarital. I, was, I, I married him. He's in my fellowship group. He teaches a Bible study in, in, um, uh, out west of town. And it, it's just a sweet relationship. It's like, how, how long am I going to disciple that guy? I don't know. I mean, we're going on 14 years now. And it's just changed. 
you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's one thing for a, you know, a single high school student. It's another thing for um, a father of three. Um, so, you know, as we, as we talk and as we disciple, you know, it, it's, it's, it's morphed into his needs. And so an encouragement of uh, him giving leadership uh, in his own marriage and parenting uh, and now leading a home study where he's got families that, you know, he's, he's teaching them, he's shepherding them, walking them through issues. He's having to navigate some, some challenging situations in some families. And, and so it's like the, the, the relationship is just morphed. Um, but there's a sense where, hey, we're, we're encouraging each other to do to do ministry. Mm. Um, so that, that's one that, you know, would, the only reason that would end would probably be because somebody would, you know, leave or, or, or move or something like that. I mean, we're just going to continue encouraging one another in the Lord. The, the ones that typically, if you're, you know, if you, when you see how powerful the scriptures are, you see how clear they are, you see how penetrating they are. It's, I've, I've compared the scriptures to a magnet. It's always got a positive and a negative, attract and repel. It's so strong and so powerful that it can't help but either attract or repel. And there's times where it might look like it's neutral. It might look like you're not really seeing. It's like, is this now repelling or attracting? Like, this, why is this? It's like the guy's just static. What's going on? Typically, if you're articulating truth in a helpful way and you're lovingly bringing truth in a penetrating way, you're going to see fruit or you're going to see, I'm out of here. Hmm. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a patience. Because I want to hear it. Yeah, they're, they're either going to grow and they want it more or they, they want it less. And so there's an element where it's like, I kind of just try to let the word do its work. Um, when the word is going to expose and transform, it's going to reprove and encourage. It's going to do all of its functions um, infinitely better than, than I can. My job is just to make, keep making sure that I'm going back to Scripture. So if, if I'm doing my job and I'm, keeping, and I'm going to Scripture and the person I'm trying to meet with and encourage from the truth, he's getting exasperated. He's just like tired. Like this is just this discipleship is just lame. Like you just keep giving me the same answers every time. Well, if I'm actually giving them scripture, well then I know that their problem is not my discipleship. Mm-hmm. The problem is the Word of God. So now I know that there's a that it's not I'm not failing them as a disciple, or they're, they're that they just don't like the only hope that they can have, which is in Christ. Um, I can't give them anything other than what Christ gives in the Word. I can't give them any other hope than that. So. Usually, it's really a non-issue. Usually, they either can't get enough of it, or it just becomes too, just, you know, too—it's too encroaching, it's too exposing, it's too penetrating for them to endure, and so they, they take off. The the times where you have to do something is in those in situations. There there are these there are these dynamics in play where sometimes you'll be looking at the—is the word gonna? push them off and, and it might be internally but you wouldn't know all you know is they just keep sticking around and they keep coming but they're not doing anything that the word calls them to do and so I want to be real in those kind of situations like you're asking about how do I have, you're, you're kind of asking the, the diagnostic question like as a doctor like how do you diagnose the, the problem you're trying to help out this professing believer you're trying to give him answers you know it's interesting you have to know the guy you're dealing with First Thessalonians 5.14 you know it says Admonish the unruly, help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with all. So it doesn't matter if you're dealing with an unruly guy, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with a weak-hearted guy, it doesn't matter who you're dealing with, you be patient with him. So I want to always be patient, I want to be very slow to come to the point where I think this guy is unruly. But if you're dealing, sometimes you're, I've dealt with guys who refuse to do what the scripture calls them to do, but they keep coming and they love coming for some reason. And I start to wonder, 
is this like a cathartic mm-hmm. cleansing for this guy? Is he just, you know, he's almost like uh, treating it like, a, like I'm a Catholic priest. You know, it's like, oh, just, okay, good. I, did. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I threw out my sins all over John Anderson's table, and so now I can just feel like, you know, I feel so much better about myself. <laughs> well, if I start to sense that that's the case, I want to start asking questions and trying to figure out, is this really where we're at? And I don't want to be a part of that. You know, I, don't want to, I want to help him out enough. And so in those kind of situations, I'll probably kill it and just say, you know what, I'm just concerned. I don't want to, I don't want to help you do, do this the wrong way. You have to come under the Word of God. Um, meeting with me is nothing. Coming under the Word of God is everything. And so those are the, those are the challenging ones where they, it's not like they're leaving of their own accord. They've got some idol that's like keeping them there. Right. And I, the only reason why I would have the, the, the gumption to say, we're not doing this anymore as a pastor is because I'm convinced that's going to be for his spiritual best. Mm. And so I'd have to be you know, patient to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What would you tell someone who is <clears throat> starting to learn more about discipleship, is reading the word, knowing they need to be in these type of relationships? What, are, what would you tell them, okay, I'm looking to be discipled. Where do I go? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to find somebody. I don't know who's good for me. Um, and on the other side, you have maybe a, a believer who's maturing and starting to think, I should be passing what I know. I need to be discipling somebody else. Um, how would you help that person find someone that they need to be discipling? Or should that be more of an organic thing if you're pursuing that on your own? Yeah, yeah. well, and that's, that's, a, that's a really valid question. Um, the organic question becomes a huge part of that because you know, there's, there's an element where it, sometimes people ha- have this view of discipleship and they, they kind of view it in this hierarchical flow chart. Mm-hmm. And um, they it's look like a at it as program less than the yeah, command that it is. Yeah, program, order of command. Like you know, they kind of they kind of they, they evaluate themselves. Well, I'm probably around a uh, first lieutenant, so I'll look for a second lieutenant, and I'm going to pour into them. And they're just making these assessments about where they're at spiritually. And um, you know, I had a, I had one friend who finished a degree and uh, an advanced degree, and, and kind of came to me and said, "Hey, I I finished my degree. I'm ready to I'm ready to be a mentor now." And I was kind of thinking, well. So I'm, I hope that degree was helpful for you, but you know I had to kind of walk them. I had to shepherd them through what life in the church looks like. The, the question would be, why would you imagine that a degree um, is a ticket to influence in the church? Like what is, those are those are different things. Mm. That just means you finished some coursework and you got a degree. But in the church, we're talking about the living body of Jesus Christ. We're talking about. Um, where Christ is putting his glory on display as people are pursuing holiness. And so if you're in the church and people aren't coming to you for help in growing in godliness, maybe, maybe you should ask, well, why is that? So there is an element where I, I think that organic um, element is, is possible as long as it's not the organic church type model that's just rebelling against everything that has anything to do with structure because there is biblical structure. Um, but the point being... You know, you want to ask, why isn't, um, you know, is this happening in relationships? Am I seeing s- successful influence in my relationships where through what I say and through how I live, I am being a positive encouragement and impetus for other believers to love Christ more? That's a great question to ask yourself as a Christian for, for the sake of those re- discipleship relationships. Because I think that's, that's what's kind of lost. It's almost like some people sit back and they're kind of waiting for it to come to them. Like, just please send people my way. And, and it's like, well, you need to demonstrate um, a track record where you can say to people, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and that should just happen naturally in the church. 
through your uh, conversation, through your life, uh, through your hospitality, through your meeting of needs. Uh, and so where that doesn't happen naturally, it won't happen if somebody just assigns you somebody to pour into. Right. So that's kind of exposing. That can be exposing. Um, but I think that's a helpful question to ask is, would somebody look to me as, hey, I think you can help me. Um, that, that requires you, the reason why that's so challenging is because as a disciple, particularly, let's just, let's just talk as men here for a second. That requires me as a man to be a leader. I've got to get ahead of people. I've got to be living ahead of them. I've got to be able to demonstrate a, um, a crucifixion of the flesh. I've got to be able to demonstrate a deadness to the world. That I've, Okay, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in, I am in the middle of the battle just like you are, but maybe you're seeing a, me a step ahead. Well, then if I can be an encouragement to you to say, hey, keep, keep coming, it's hard. I, I know where you're at. I'm in it too. I'm, maybe I'm a few steps farther because I've been in Christ longer or by God's grace, maybe I've seen some d- victories there. If I can be an encouragement to you, great. But I'm not going to be able to help out another believer if I haven't won those battles, if I'm not modeling it. I'm just going to be self-righteous. You know, the only way I can help them t- toward Christ is if I am farther down the road and can say, step here, don't step here. You know, it's kind of like the soldier, you know, the soldier analogy. It's like the guy who knows the battlefield and the, the new recruit. He's like, no, you want to stay out of that field. We're going to march over here. Like, trust me, just follow me on this one. You know, there's an element where there's that experience of modeling Christ-likeness that should be a positive, positive impetus in those other guys' lives. Mm. Um, now, I think I missed a question, though. I need to go back. You had a first question that I never got back to uh, before you asked me about... Um, oh, I think you asked me about how do you recognize... How do you get started? Oh, yes, for the person who yeah, wants Yeah, so the person who says, hey, I need to get discipled... I, I would just encourage you, go talk to your pastor. Okay, here's, here's why I say that. If you think about it from this biblical standpoint, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that every, you know, you say, hey, I hear, I hear you preach a sermon on Sunday, I need to meet with you. Not, that's not what I'm saying. Go talk to the, the elder, the pastor in your life who's going to give an account for your soul, because if they're going to give an account for your soul, they're going to know who else is doing well or excelling or gonna, it's going to have answers, and it's not going to be maybe a confusion for you. And so either they can meet with you, they can give you answers, or they can give you somebody else, or maybe they're going to tag team with someone. Um, you know, so I, I've, I've done that before where you try to, you're, you're meeting a need and, and you bring somebody else along to kind of meet that need with you. And now you're, now you're kind of, you're, an, you're answering an urgent need here. And then you're also mentoring somebody else to be able to meet that kind of need who's, no, I've never thought about that. Okay, how do you, you know, and they might not be struggling with that particular issue, but you're able to equip them. Um, you know, I think, I think that's a helpful way to, you have almost, you're meeting two needs at once like that. But for that guy who's looking for it, I would just start with the person who's responsible for your soul. I think that's biblical ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Elders are going to give an account. They are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. On, in, on the day of his appearing, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the spiritual health of the people in my church. And so... That doesn't mean that somebody in my church can't go to somebody else and say, hey, can you answer this question? Can you help me? Can you open up scriptures with me? That's great. That happens all the time. That's, but if, they're really ner- if they don't know where to go, go to the person who's going to give an account. Right. And if they don't have the time to meet that need, they're going to be able to connect you to somebody who can meet that need. And if they don't, then they're negligent mm. because they're going to answer for that. So absolutely, I would, I would just follow the biblical ecclesiology and go straight to an elder and, um, and they'll be able to help you. And if they can't, then that's probably a sign that you're not in the right church. Right. That's good. Would you say um, that pride may be one of the the biggest killers to prevent men in particular from pursuing discipleship? 
hmm. relationships that they need somebody in their life. Mm -hmm. um, I know for my, uh, for myself, when we talked about all the similarities in our testimony, you know, you're, my dad passed away from health issues, cancer, all when I was 25. And so his same year I got married and for such a long time, I was so worried to ask anybody for help because well, just that, that just shows that like I don't have it together, mm. you know, mm -hmm. until finally live through life and realize, oh, I can see the effect of not having a godly older man in my life anymore. Mm. It, it took a while to realize it. And then I was too prideful to ask for help. Once I realized that, it took me about a year <laughs> until finally I had the same guy in my mind the whole time. And then finally at church one day I was like, hey, you know, we don't really know each other but can I take you to coffee? You've been on my mind. And he's like, sure. And finally just asked him, he's like, I'd love to do that. Mm -hmm. And now it's probably going on almost two years and it's been amazing. Mm. Um, but for all that time, before even realizing, it was just pride. Mm -hmm. And then once I realized it, it's just more pride mm -hmm. <laughs> of not wanting to go there. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that that's pretty consistent across Absolutely, men who, yeah. who yeah. don't pursue those relationships? Yeah, absolutely. There's there there are a couple there are a couple dangers on on different sides of the issue, but that's got to be the major one. Um, we were talking about this. We were talking about this last night mm -hmm. in small groups. Um, why? What causes us to stop short of pressing in to getting full biblical clarity? And Jesus's answer is pride. You know, we were looking at Mark nine. So, you know, in you think about what happens in Mark nine at the beginning of the chapter is the transfiguration. So he unzips his humanity. They come down the mountain. And as, as, as Mark starts describing this descent down the hill, you've got Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The other nine are at the bottom of the mountain. And he tells Peter, James, and John, he says, by the way, don't say anything about this until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And then Mark says they seized on this statement. Like, he's going to rise from the dead? Like, what? So then they start, they respond. It's fascinating. Mark records how they respond, and they allude to Elijah. Why, why is it, Jesus, that the scribes say that, um, you know, Elijah's going to come first? Now, it's, you, you might read that and imagine that's an honest question. It's not an honest question because they're appealing to Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, the prophecy that the Lord is going to show up in his temple. Right. And the, before that happens, Elijah's going to show up and give, and give revival. And he's going to turn men, uh, the hearts of fathers and sons, back to Yahweh so that when he comes and establishes a kingdom on earth, it's not uninhabited. Right. There's actually people in his kingdom. So that's the, na that's the nature of this prophecy. So now you understand what the, the disciples are doing. Jesus makes a statement about suffering and this apparent death and this resurrection. What? And they're sitting there saying, oh, by the way, you remember that prophecy? Uh, let's, just go, let's just camp on Mark th Malachi 3 and 4 here for a second, Jesus. And so then Jesus says, well, um, how do you deal with the passages that say that the Son of Man is going to suffer? And then they didn't have an answer. So you fast forward, and they're leaving after the next narrative. Later in the middle of the chapter, uh, they leave after the healing of the, the casting out of the demon uh, from the 12-year-old boy. And um, Jesus gives another prediction of his sufferings. Okay, I'm going I'm to be handed over to the hands of men. I'm going to be mistreated, abused, mocked, scourged, spit upon. I'm going to rise on the third day. And... Um, it says that they didn't understand what he was saying. Mark, Mark just gives the theological commentary. They didn't understand what he was saying, uh, and they were afraid to ask. Hmm. So 
they already tried, they already tried to argue with him theologically, and that didn't work. <laughs> you can't argue theologically with Jesus. And um, so now they don't like the answers. They don't like the, it's like he keeps talking about this suffering business. Mm. I'm not sure what that means. Bottom line is, I don't want to know what that means. Because the disciples were at a point where they were thrilled at the fact that they found the Messiah. They're ready to reign. They want to roll out red carpet. They want to see Caesar knocked off the throne. Why don't you just go ahead and rule? We'll be number two, number three. We'll sit at the right and the left. The very next verse says, so then Jesus asked them what they were talking about on the way, on the journey. And they didn't want to answer him because they were having an argument about who was the greatest. And the, and the Greek literally kind of it makes the whole thing a noun. It says they were having the who is the greatest among them argument. <laughs> it's just incredible how he writes it. And so they're having this knockdown, drag out uh, display of selfish ambition. It's preventing them from getting clarity because Jesus is trying to prepare them for suffering and they don't really want to think about suffering. And so there's an element where not wanting the answers will prevent you from going to the person who has them. And so I, I always marvel, you know, when somebody is living a holy life, somebody's living a humble life, somebody is demonstrated that they have crucified the flesh, they're seeing victory, and they've counted the cost, and somebody looks in from the outside and they see what it invo what's involved, and they aren't attracted to getting answers from that person, how did you do that? Can you show, that, show, me, show me that from scripture? What, what was convicting for you? How did you crucify the desires of the flesh? What was happening in the inner man? How did, what, what, what's that look like? I mean, if you're not attracted to that, it's probably because you don't want the answer. You don't want to hear the answer of what it's going to cost you know, to follow Christ at that level. You, there's probably an element where, like, oh, yeah, I like Christ, I like forgiveness, but I also like comfort, I like ease. I like... And so that's going to prevent you from getting discipleship that you need. So um, I think that's huge. Um, there, there are a few on the flip side of that. This is probably not as common as what you're, you're describing. I think you nailed it on the, on the pride issue. There are guys who probably hurt their discipleship. Um, they're, they're okay with being wrong. They're like, they come to a guy and they just say, hey, give me the answers. I, you know, that's great. And they just continue to meet and continue to meet. And they look for, you know, a, a, another older, wiser man to give them answers. And sometimes, and this is, this is more of a guy problem. This is not really a girl problem. Because, you know, if you're, if you have a, if you're dealing with youth and, and trying to make sure that you're um, preparing, uh, you know, the girls in your ministry are, are meeting with older women and they're trying to get answers, that, that's a little different. There's a dependency there that's hardwired into the gender role. But particularly cultivating masculine leadership in the church this becomes a real challenge where sometimes guys will find their leaders or their mentors uh, as a crutch. And sometimes I've seen them not develop into leaders who can take initiative, who can exercise biblical discernment and can take a stand and be wise and discerning about those stands because they find themselves just kind of always riding the coattails of older, wiser guys. And so what I've told young men is I've said, hey, what you need to do is you need to, before you go and ask, you know, a godly man what, how he would navigate it, you need to flex your biblical discernment and come up with the best answer you can from the scriptures and then go to him and say, here's the problem, here's the dilemma, here's the text I'm studying, here's what I'm thinking about that. Punch holes in that. Punch holes in that. How do you think about that? You know, and so that's, that's I think that's a way that you can develop uh, leaders and cultivate leaders in the church um, without you know, really ruining the discipleship process because they, you know, young men need to learn from older, wiser leaders. But you don't, you, you don't want these guys getting their, you know, their, their ability to actually take a stand and just be a leader and count the cost and say, okay, I'm going to have to stand where Scripture tells me to stand on my own. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that, I don't think that's going to create solo lobos in the church. That's how you create masculine leadership that's willing to count the cost for the sake of benefiting souls. Right. So...
Thank you. That, that is helpful. What a good discussion to just kind of help us think about discipleship. Um, turn it into a little shotgun here. So we were discussing this earlier. If you could give us the, your synopsis. So in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we've got um, uh, God is rendered is a little g in our English, transa- uh, English translation for God of this world um, to let the reader be aware that that's talking about Satan. Um, and, then, but, and then we have the same term used a couple verses later in verse 6 for the God who's, who let the light shine into the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we look at the parallel passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, same writer, Paul, um, we've got Satan there, but then he has God, and it's rendered with a big G in the English um, for, the, for the God who deludes. So what is the difference between those two passages in why it's rendered that way? Little G, God of this world, doing the deluding, and big G, mm-hmm. doing the delusion. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that's a, and, and that's a great question, because you're, you're pointing out that really all translation to some degree is going to have a level of interpretation. And, um, you know, you have to decide, like, how are you going to translate this? What's, what's the author doing here? Uh, because in, in 2 Corinthians 4, you do have an example where theos, you know, the word God here, is modified by the God of this world. And so that's your first indicator that, well, that might not be, likely isn't, the, the, the God, the Father. Because, you know, Paul is not in the habit of giving delimitations to God the Father's domain or his rulership. So here you're talking about the God of this world. The, the issue on this interpretation for me is not the fact that he's doing the blinding. So like you're right, in 2 Thess 3, or 2 Thess 2, you have an example where God, the very God who receives thanks from believers for their election, is the God who's um, um, suppressing truth, or I mean, uh, um, blinding hearts uh, so that they do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Um, so there's a judgment happening. It's divine, and he's right to do that because he's the judge of the universe. He's not wicked. He, he's, he would never harden somebody who's righteous. Uh, but he is hardening as a consequence of his justice. Um, so it's not an issue that, hey, this couldn't be a function of God. The question is just, what is he saying? And Paul is making an argument here in Second Corinthians where he's explaining that there are deluding influences coming into the church that are satanic. So here's an example where he calls him the God of this world. Um, you know, you do have other examples where, you know, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's sovereign over the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 1, 2, and, I'm uh, sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, he holds captive uh, the sons of disobedience to do his will, 2 Timothy 2, 26. But more important than other texts that talk about Satan is this letter. It's interesting that in Corinthians later on, he starts talking about how Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he starts talking about how Satan comes in and influences the church. And when he starts describing the, the um, thorn in the flesh, he says it's a messenger of Satan. Mm. It's actually an angel sent from Satan. And in the previous chapter, he says that, the, 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 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he has his mis- messengers uh, who he sends out. And so it's clearly making the point that the deluding influence that's producing doctrinal contamination and co- confusion and compromise in the church and moral compromise is a satanic influence. There's leaders who are, you know, promoting their whole Greco-Roman rhetoric, putting, trying to put Paul in their place. Uh, all of that, he's saying that's satanic influence. Mm. He, he's not saying that God doesn't 
can't or won't harden, because he does. God can and will, you know, blind when his justice demands it. But this is a function that Satan's having an impact in the Corinthian church. So it's helpful to, you know, look at that verse, you know, especially chapter 4, and then think about it in the light of the whole letter. And by the time you get to especially 11 and 12, you realize, man, this is satanic influence. Mm. Um, so, so, so it seems like it comes down to kind of those two things. One, in 2 Corinthians 4, he's limiting that God by saying God of this world mm-hmm. and then broadening it out to the greater context that is consistent with the, the satanic influence that the Corinthian church is dealing with at the time. That's right. Mm. That's right. And That's so when he talks about the influence, I'll just go back here and read it because I mentioned it, but I didn't, I didn't take the time to read it. He says, he calls the, the people who are influenced, they're, they're human leaders in the church, and he says, such men, they're, they're, they're boasting, they're bragging about their accomplishments and comparing it to Paul. In other words, they're, they're having larger influences, they're probably gathering larger crowds, their message appealed to the Greco-Roman appetite for rhetoric, and Paul's did not. Paul refused to adopt that methodology to articulate the gospel because mm-hmm. he, wants he wants the selling point to be the cross, not his, right. abil- his oratorical ability. And so they're drawing bigger crowds, and they're bragging about it, and they're saying, look what we're doing. Paul never pulled this off. And he says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds." And he uses that word messenger, which is the word angel here. And in the very next chapter, he says that this, he's asking for this thorn in the flesh to leave. And he calls that thorn in the flesh. And um, in chapter 12, verse 7, it's a messenger of Satan. And so its appearance would be spiritual influence. It shows up looking like a positive spiritual influence. I mean, if it looked like Satan, it wouldn't be a successful influence. So that's why it's disguised. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why it's so subtle. Um, and so I think that's all, all of that what's happening in the letter is very important even in verse 4 when he calls the God of this world and he uses the word theos for Satan mm. you know because he does have a, a, a God given dominion over what's happening in the world uh, for a short time mm. thank you that is helpful that clarifies a lot for me <clears throat> to finish up our conversation earlier in the day John was asked what has been the hardest thing about ministry so far and here is how he answered that Kevin just asked me about that this morning. He said, what was the uh, hardest, what's, the, what's been the hardest thing of ministry? And it just, I just knew immediately it's harder than any dilemma I've faced in ministry is battling my own heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we talked about that earlier on discipleship. I just think that's so critical um, that, uh, you know, you, you cannot be useful to Christ um, with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition will pollute. You, you won't be able to hang on to the truth. You won't be able to interpret it accurately. Uh, you won't be able to rejoice when other people find Christ. You're going to slowly find yourself promoting self. You're going to find yourself, you're no longer going to be edifying. All of your instruction ends up being toward self. Paul says, you know, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, sincere faith. Other people are seeking to be known as experts, and they make confident assertions about things they don't even know. And so that ruins the effectiveness in the church to be able to, I, I can't rightly handle a scripture that is unrelenting in how it glorifies Jesus Christ if I'm doing it trying to make a name for myself. I can't be faithful. Impossible. And so, and I think that's just so, so critical. So, just to piggyback on what we 
what we were talking about. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been great. It's awesome to hear your heart. Great, great questions. Um, gosh, we got to do a part two of this. Maybe part three, part four over the phone. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I am so thankful for the time I got to have with John and being able to hear his heart for ministry and discipleship. What a blessing that was, and I hope it was for you too. Thank you for listening to Off the Pulpit. Please make sure to subscribe, follow, rate, and review, and help us get these conversations with pastors in front of more people to whom they can be a blessing and an encouragement to. Thank you so much for listening.